but we're waiting for that blessed hope, that time when Christ returns. And how should we live until that time? The grace of God and salvation guiding us to reject sin and lead lives that are pleasing to God in every aspect. Living lives of self-control, living lives of purity, living lives of being sober-minded, being faithful, being steadfast. But not, not because of our effort, because, of the, because we surrender to God and God's grace is moving in our lives. It's not because I'm trying harder. I'm, I'm good at trying harder. I'm good at failing as I try harder. But it's harder to surrender and allow God's grace to work in our lives. I don't know about you, but I like to know why. I'm constantly asking God why. And small children especially are good at that. You say, go clean your room. Why? Go do this. Why? 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 We want to know why. If we're told we have to do something, the natural human response is to think or to even ask, why do I have to do this? I mean, I think children learn to do this immediately when they begin to talk. I think it's probably one of the top five, first five words they learn. Hopefully it's, I should say mommy, daddy, or daddy's hope it's daddy, mommy. But mommy, daddy, you know, mine, and why? There's four. So why should we act the way that Paul suggests last week? Remember in last week's sermon, and I'll, I'm kinda, I'll quickly cover some of that in a moment, but he, he goes through where, where we're supposed to be. He gives us this list of things of how we're supposed to act, how the older men are supposed to act, how the older women are supposed to act, how the younger women are supposed to act, how the younger men are supposed to act, how those who are slaves or workers, they're supposed to act. But why? Why do we need to act that way? Because our natural human response is, I don't want to act that way. I don't want to be these things. And the things that he talked about, he said we need, be, need to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Those are two of the big things we need to be. Well, I don't want to be sober-minded. I want what's mine. I want for me. I want... But see, if, if we know why we're supposed to do this, if we know why we're supposed to be sober-minded, why we're not supposed to do these things we're not supposed to do, it, it kind of gives us a little bit of, bit of a motivation, you might say, in order to do them. And one of the reasons we saw even last week, it said we are to do these things so that the word of the Lord would not be reviled. And I think about that and you think, well, how is the word of God reviled when the church is doing, people in the church are doing things they're not supposed to do? Believe me, this world is full of churches who don't do what they're supposed to do. Think about this recently. Think about the problems with, with Hillsong and the, the misconduct among the leaders. And, and the blow off of that. And, and you say, well, most Christians will forget. But yeah, most Christians will. The problem is the world who are pagan, who do not believe in Christ. That's another notch in their belt to say, ah, that's the problem with Christianity. That's the problem with their God. If they can't do what's right, why should I even believe in a God like that? So when we don't act the way we are supposed to, it actually makes the name of the Lord be reviled. But then we also have to ask, well, how? How can we do this? How can we live like, we're, like Paul tells us to? And in essence, it's how Jesus wants us to live. And this is what Paul is going to tell Titus. He's going to tell them, he, we know why. We kind of know why, so it's not reviled. And a little bit, we'll find out why today. But also, we're going to find out how. 
So Titus 2, starting in verse 11, we're going to go through 15. It says, For by gra- the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word here. What Paul wrote to Titus. Help us to do these things, to take them to heart and not just be hearers, but doers. We pray this in your name. Amen. The first word in these verses is for. And anytime you go to a beginning of a section or you go to a verse or part of the scripture and it says for, that means you have to go back and look at what happened previously. It, it, it doesn't stand alone. It, 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 you must go back. And that references, references back to last week's sermon. Why are we to live righteous lives? Because we have God's grace. And we live those righteous lives through the grace of God. And that power, there's power in that grace. And we've received that power. Because our salvation has its roots, it roots in God's grace. Paul says, tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, he tells him, who saved us, he's talking about God, Jesus, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, Paul's saying there, we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by who we know. We're saved by God's grace that he gives us through Christ. That is how we are to live holy lives. It's by the grace of God through Jesus Christ that gives us the power to overcome temptation. That's one of the, one of the major issues we have as humans is we're tempted. And it's, we cannot overcome it on our own. We do nobody has enough willpower to completely overcome all temptation. If someone says they have no sin in their lives, they're a liar. Paul says so. Because we're all tempted. We can't do it on our own because Satan is good. He knows our weaknesses. He's going to come a time when he's going to be able to get at us and we're going to fall. But we need to understand that God's grace is sufficient for us. We need to rest in that grace to overcome the temptation. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. And it's the grace that helps us. And Paul also says in Ephesians 2, he says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we're dead. We've done nothing good. We're made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. We have been saved by grace. We don't deserve it. But he did it. And all we have to do is accept it and walk in it and and live our lives in a way that honors him 
It does take will. We, we have to want to do the right thing. There's no doubt about that. But we're going to be tempted to not do it. So that's where grace comes in. And the power of grace comes into our lives. And we say, okay, I, I can't do this. I shouldn't do this. And, and, and we're, so I'm not going to. But what is it? What exactly is grace? Well, we need to understand that grace is a very much an essential part of God's character. It's closely related to his benevolence, his love, his mercy. It can be defined as God's favor toward the unworthy. You and I have done nothing to deserve God's grace. Nothing to deserve God's grace at all. God's benevolence to us is undeserving. In his grace, God's willing to forgive us and bless us abundantly. We've all been blessed beyond what we deserve. Way more than we deserve. And in spite of the fact that we don't deserve to be treated so well and dealt with so generously, God still longs to do that for us. Because without Christ, we're born in sin. We're guilty of breaking the laws of God. Without him, we would be continue to be lawless. We're enemies of God. We deserve death. We're unrighteous and lost without any means to justify ourselves. That's one of the issues in the world today is people say, well, well, most people are good. No, I'm sorry. No one is good. If we were left to our, our own measure, if we were left to ourselves, we would not be good people. We're destitute. We're unclean. We're blind. We're dead. We face eternal punishment. But then grace comes in. Christ dies on the cross for us. Takes our sin upon him. God extends his favor to us. And the Bible repeatedly calls grace a gift. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is, this is a very important analogy because it teaches us some very key things about grace. The first thing it teaches us about grace is that anyone who has received a gift, we understand when you give someone a gift, it's not a loan. If I come to you and say, I'm going to give you $1,000, and I give you $1,000, and then two weeks I come back and say, you need to pay me back that $1,000, you're going to say, wait a minute, you say you gave it, give, it's a gift. They're not the same thing. We don't have to pay it back. So here's the thing. When, if God has given us his grace and we are saved, we, we are not paying him back by living righteous lives. That's not why we're doing it. Not to pay him back. We live righteous lives because that's what we are to do. That's what God's grace once makes us want to do. The fact that grace is a gift means that I owe nothing in return. The second thing, there's no cost to the person who receives the gifts. If you're going to come to me and you say, Pastor, I have, I, have this, I have this car I want to give you. Here you go. It's yours. Now, could you give me $10,000? That's not a gift. You want me to buy it. It's a purchase. Ownership of the gift is transferred from the one who had it to the one who's going to get it and to keep it. There's no, if it's a loan or a purchase, it's not a permanence. 
There's no permanence to it. When a gift changes hands, the giver permanently relinquishes all rights to renege or to take back the gift in the future. God's grace is ours forever. We don't lose it if we had it. Fourth, in the giving of a gift, the giver voluntarily forfeits something he owns. I can't go to you hold a gun to your head and say, okay, you're going to give me $5,000 and it's a gift. Okay? That was coercion. That, that, that's not a gift. You, it's it's got to be given freely. It's, it's got to be given without duress. When a gift is giving, given to somebody, if I give someone a gift, I'm willingly losing what, what belongs to me and so that recipient can profit from this. So think about that. God, God's grace is given to us. We can profit from it. Well, how can we profit from it? Well, we get eternal life. And it enriches our lives. I mean, think about this. And this is something I think we, we kind of, I struggle sometimes with people understanding this. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all fruits of the Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit. When we have those, what is your life like? If you have the gift of the Spirit, if you're manifesting, if you're living out the gifts of the Spirit, what is your life like? Well, people want to be around you because what? You're loving. You're joyful. Peaceful. Kind. You're gentle. You're faithful. You have self-control. People want to be around you. Your life will be better. You're like, well, I I'm so joyful, I don't have anything. It's, you'll find joy in the things you're supposed to. Your life will be much better if you, have these, if you do these things, if you live your life in a way that pleases God. It will be much better. It profits us. The giver becomes poor. Well, I'm probably, to be honest with you, God does not become poor when he gives us his grace. Because God has, has unlimited resources. His grace is unlimited. But in our human perspective, the recipient becomes richer and the giver becomes poorer. This generous and voluntary exchange from the giver to the recipient is visible in 2 Corinthians 8.9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... He was God. He was with the Father. Owns everything. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He was born in a stable. He did not have a place to lay his head. He, wa he walked around. He didn't have a, a team of horses in a wagon that took him everywhere. He walked from place to place. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Fifth, the Bible teaches that grace is completely unmerited. I give you this gift not because you've done something for me or because you're such a great person. I just give it freely. The gift and the act of giving have nothing at all to do with the merit or the innate quality of the person who's receiving it. As I said, we all deserve one thing, and that's death. And Christ gives us life by his grace. Romans 11, 5-6, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If, if, we are, if, if we think we're such great people that God gives us grace, and that's why, then it's not grace anymore. The Bible says quite clearly, we don't deserve God's salvation. Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're sinners, and he dies for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We're enemies, and God reconciles us to him. And he does that through the death of Jesus Christ. And now, and if, if that was it, if it stopped there, it'd be, oh, okay. But three days later, he rose from the grave. And because of his life now, because of our reconciliation, reconciliation to Christ through his death, we are now promised a new life, eternal life. That's grace. But what does it do? What does grace do? Well, grace has a formidable influence on our lives. Look again at verse 12 of Titus 2. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness. See, God's grace trains us to denounce ungodliness or to renounce it. Same thing. And worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. See, the, way, the reason why we are able to live lives that are godly, lives that are filled with the fruit of the Spirit, lives that Paul talked we should be living in last week's sermon, the way, reason why we're able to do that is because of His grace. It's not just because we're such good people. It's not just because we've tried harder. It's because of His grace. It is grace that helps us to reject ungodliness and the passions of this world. Grace guides us in our lives to attain self-control. It helps us with our self-control. But it's not our self-control that does it for us. It helps us to attain uprightness and godliness. And usually it's grace that starts the transformation process and empowers us to live a life and to walk in faith. And see, the ultimate purpose of grace is to conform us to be more and more like Christ. Remember what I said to the kids, how can we, how can we give grace? And, and the, the, the answers were great, love, and we tell them we love them. Yeah, that's, that is, that's why we have grace, because we love. God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, yeah, he loves us, so he gives us grace. But how do we give grace? We give grace by forgiving those around us. Not holding them accountable for what they've done. Romans 8, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the first among many brothers. Firstborn among many brothers. Just as a little side note, this, this verse is actually used a lot of times to, to talk about predestination. Yes, I do believe in predestination, but it's in a plural sense. It's not an individual sense. It says, it says for those for those." plural, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He predestines us as believers in Christ, okay, to be conformed to the image of a son. 
all of us who are believers in Christ, not just a single person. But see, throughout our lives, we carry hearts tainted. Our hearts are tainted by the wickedness of sin. And it creates this perpetual vulnerability to sin. We are always susceptible to temptation. We're always, I mean, even Jesus was tempted. He was perfect, and he still was tempted. We, we sometimes succumb to our ungodliness, or we, we yield to these worldly passions. The world looks like fun. I mean, it, it looks awesome. It's like little baubles, and it's beautiful. The world has so many things to give us, and so many things that can destroy us. Many times we succumb to the prevalent sinful desires in a world that's rebelling against God. And we, this sin, this, this, this propensity that we have to sin shows us the immense value of God's grace. It keeps us from sinning. Grace instructs us to resist ungodliness and worldly passions. Without, without this profound influence of God's grace, we would be defenseless against sin. We'd fall prey to all these temptations we have in our lives. But it's God's grace that enables us to renounce our sinful behavior and to live lives that are marked instead by self-control, by uprightness, and by godliness in this present age. And understand, Paul is talking to Titus, and this is like in the first century. And you say, ma'am, but did he have to deal with all the things we had to deal with? Oh, there were just as many temptations back then as there are now. It, the, the temptations haven't changed. It's just the way they're being presented have. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have social media like we do now. But there was plenty of other things. They've, 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 taken, they've done um, archaeological digs where they've taken these houses in these Roman towns. And believe me, the, the mosaics that are on some of these walls are as bad as anything you can find on the internet. Pictures made of little tiles that, show, that depict things that should never be done. They were tempted too. And it's easy to fall prey to that. It is God's grace that enables us to renounce it. It's often noted that these, there's these three attributes, self-control, uprightness, and godliness, each point in a different direction. See, self-control deals with me. I, I need to, it, it, it's not like we can say, well, I don't have to be in control because grace is going to take care of it for me. No, grace teaches us self-control. It's kind of like, so let's say I'm an electrician and I want to train a new guy how to work. He's going to have certain tools he needs to use. I will not tell him, well, you take this wire and you take your fingers and you twist them around and you just leave it like that. No, he has tools he needs to do. First of all, he needs to turn the electricity off. Second of all, he has, he, has, he has pliers that you bend them together. He has wire nets you put on. He has screwdrivers that you use. You have tools in your pocket to help you. And that's what grace does. It teaches you to use those tools. And the tool we have is self-control. So the self-control is faced goes inwards, pertains to ourselves, Uprightness is to others. Uprightness is what I told the kids, where you forgive those who have hurt you. That's uprightness. I'm, I'm upright within my community. 
It's dealing with others. And godliness is our relationship with God. So it's inwardly to me, that's self-control, uprightness to those around me, and godliness to God himself. Obeying his laws. A life that's enabled by grace is well-balanced and comprehensive, which means that I'm self-controlled, okay? I'm upright towards those around me, and I'm godly because I'm doing what God wants me to do. That's what a life that's enabled by grace will be. Seeking to please God in every aspect of our lives, towards others, towards ourselves, and towards God. See, when we sin, okay, we sin. We sin against us, ourselves, our bodies. We sin against our bodies. We also sin against others. And we also sin against God. But when we have grace, grace helps us to be self-controlled so we're not sinning against our bodies, against ourselves. We're not sinning against others in our lives and we're definitely not sinning against God when we have grace teaching us these things. So given this, our duty is clear. We have to cooperate with grace and not resist it. I think that's one of the biggest problems we have as humanity is we resist the grace of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, when I'm tempted, what do I say? I say, well, I'm tempted, but I can deal with it myself. I got it all by myself. I don't do anything. I got self-control. I can do it. And then what do we do? We fall. Or we're tempted and we say, oh, I don't care. I'm just going to do it anyways. That, what that means is that your soul has been seared to where your conscience no longer tells you it's a bad thing. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Because when you're there, you're lost. Because, see, the Holy Spirit speaks to our conscience and says, you know this is wrong, and you need to repent. You need to repent for yourself. You need to repent to God. You need to repent to anybody that you've hurt. Because grace leads us to a life that's devoid of ungodliness. There's no ungodly things in our lives. There's no, unworld, there's no worldly passions in our lives. We're self-controlled. We're upright. We're godless. Our godliness, we have godliness reigning supreme in our lives. We're to consistently follow the guidance that grace gives us, embracing the godly lifestyle outlined to us in verses 2 through 10 of Titus. And that prompts us and empowers us to adopt that, those godly lifestyles on a daily basis. Now, we live in a world where things wear out. Sooner or later, this, this podium is not going to last forever. This Bible is not going to, my pad is not going to last forever. The clothes I wear are not going to last forever. But how long does grace last? Verse 13 tells us, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But in that, you got to understand, grace does not stop once we are saved. Once we trust in God, that's, grace doesn't stop there. God's grace is to us for the rest of our lives, working within us and upon us. Grace provides us access to God to communicate with and have fellowship with him. We're not in this alone. None of us are alone in this. We all walk. We can walk with Christ and he can help get us through. His grace does that for us. He helps us when we have any need, any need that we have in our lives. Uh, there's things I'm struggling with, so what do I do? I need to go to God. I need to pray to him. Is he going to answer me? Maybe. He might. Anybody who's gone through counseling 
Anybody who sat with somebody and gone through counseling, I'll be honest with you, most counselors do not have the answers because I understand, and I know this because I know a lot of them, most counselors are messed up themselves. <laughs> most psychiatrists need psychiatrists. But, but it's, not, it's not that they have all the answers. It's that they're listening. They're listening to you. There's so much to be said about telling, to talk. We're supposed to, we're supposed to share our sins with each other. We're supposed to share our troubles with each other. Why? Because then we have somebody listening to us. That's why we're supposed to go to God when we're tempted. Because he listens to us. He's, you're not going to hear his voice. Chances are you won't hear his voice. Very few people actually hear the voice of God. But he will nudge you. Or he'll bring somebody around you to confirm and to affirm something that you already know. God's grace gives us that access. Remember, we were separated from God, and Jesus comes, and now we're close to him. We've, we, the, the channels and the communication can now happen with God again. So when you find yourself in trouble, when you find yourself tempted, the first thing you should be doing is praying, God, help me. Help me overcome this. When, you're, when you've got things on your mind, I've, it's been going, I've been going through some things recently, I said, man, God, I, I need you to, to help me with this. Help me figure this out. I know, I know what I should do, but I'm just not, I'm not ready to do that yet. <laughs> That's usually the case. So Lord, help me. Confirm it with me. Make sure I know that it's your will. Help me to do your will. That's the surrender part. And then praise him for who he is. God helps us with any need that we have. <laughs> Scripture says you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask for the wrong reasons. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, what grace does, grace disciplines us, and it trains us to do things and to live in such a way that honors God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And if you may be wondering, why is he telling me all these verses? I'm just showing you that Paul is consistent through all of this. Scripture, it's not just in Titus that he says these things. Paul says this throughout his writings. The Bible tells us over and over again how we are to live our lives. Now the question is, why don't we live that way? Because we're sinful, fallen people. And we're not drawn close to God. We need to continue to draw close to God. But this is what it says in 2 Corinthians. It says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, those things that are important, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So as you're excelling in being a believer in Christ, excel in grace too, in giving grace to others. This is as, as a grace, it grants us immeasurable riches. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. You and I are sitting on the throne of God with Christ. That's what we've been given. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. I have to, you know, I always wonder why why didn't why didn't Jesus why when he would when he died and he rose again 
And he's standing on the Mount of Olives, ready to go back to the Father. Why didn't he just take all the believers with him? Why didn't he just take the 12 and all the disciples, the apostles and the disciples? Why did he not take everyone at that moment and be done with it? Satan was there. He could have defeated him right there. There's many arguments. Many antichrists have come and gone. Scripture tells us it's going to happen. Why didn't he do it? And it's because of this verse right here. Because it says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christ hasn't returned yet because he wants to continue to show how the richness in his grace. Grace is actively and continually working in the lives of God's people. It works. It's ongoing. It's a benevolent act of God working in us, around us, through us. And without his grace, we can't do anything. Grace is greater than our sin, more abundant than we can expect, and it's too wonderful for words. And it's grace that makes us gracious to others. We are given grace so that we can serve others and use our spiritual gifts to build the church. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, he says, And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And you can say, well, God, I'm a pastor. I don't have any gifts. Oh, yes, you do. You have two ears. You can listen. You can have compassion. You can hear. It's very evident that Paul underscores God's grace for a specific reason. He mentions, back up here, In verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? The glorious appearing of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a future event. The present age that Paul alludes to is, is in verse 12. has not yet occurred at his time. I think this present age is every age. But we're waiting for that blessed hope, that time when Christ returns. And how should we live until that time? The grace of God and salvation guiding us to reject sin and leave lives that are pleasing to God in every aspect. Living lives of self-control, living lives of purity, living lives of being sober-minded, being faithful, being steadfast. But not, not because of our effort, because, of the, because we surrender to God and God's grace is moving in our lives. It's not because I'm trying harder. I'm, I'm good at trying harder. I'm good at failing as I try harder. But it's harder to surrender and allow God's grace to work in our lives. So how did we get grace? Imagine that you know a person in your community who, despite embracing Christianity and continues to endure mistreatment from someone who claims ownership. Think about somebody who's a slave. A slave, in other words... You know, they, they, they're, so they're the slave. They're, they're bound to that person. You want to help them. So you step in, you negotiate the freedom for the slave. And you purchase that slave's freedom. You've redeemed them. You used a payment to secure their liberation from oppressing, oppressing tyranny. And see, this, this transaction kind of sheds a little bit of light on the significance of Jesus' death. He sacrificed himself to redeem us. He paid the price for our sins. All the sins of the world, past, present, future, were laid upon him at that moment. According to Paul, this freedom is from all wickedness, or more literally, all lawlessness. 
Before we embraced our faith in Jesus Christ, we might have been law-abiding by society's terms, but we were far from law-abiding when it comes to God. Our actions many times conflict with God's law, filled with deeds that are forbidden and condemned. Jesus' self-sacrifice was precisely there to liberate us from the law of God, paying the price for everything that we are going to do that's wrong. His purpose in sacrificing himself for us extends beyond redemption, though. As Paul indicated in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What he did was, his, his death on the cross saved us from our sins, but it also, it also purifies us to do good works for him. And this is strong contrast to the lawlessness that we lived before. In the New Testament context, being eager to do good implies a sincere desire to please one Savior, following his will with obedience, service, and worship. So why do we do these things? Why do we live this life of self-control? It's, it's not because we're such good people. It's because that's a response to what God has done for us. If I do something nice to you, you're going to be more inclined to do something nice for me. Especially if you do something, if, you, if I give you something and you don't deserve it, it's going to change your opinion towards me. Christ died to save us from our sins, but also to set us on a path where we are living lives where we're zealous for good works. It's intended to create a community characterized by such eagerness, a people purified from sin and liberated from its enslaving power, but also hungry and eager to do good things, to live lives of self-control, of determination. And that only could happen through the death, the sacrificial death of Jesus offering himself for us. Paul concludes this section by reminding Titus, and in reality us, that there is a responsibility to, to fulfill. He tells him in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. From the very beginning to the end of the section of Paul's letter, Titus is urged to teach sound doctrine. He gives clear and meticulous instructions on how Christians are supposed to live and what should motivate us to do so. God's grace and Christ's self-sacrifice. But he further advises Timothy to exhort and rebuke with all authority. Titus is supposed to, is supposed to just, just, not just supposed to relay information. He's not just supposed to share information with everybody. He is to find those people who are not teaching the correct doctrine, and he is to exhort and rebuke them. Online, there's, there's, there's some pastors that are, rebu that are rebu rebuking and exhorting these other pastors who are not preaching sound doctrine. And people say, well, what's it, their business? Why should they be doing that? Because the Bible tells us we're supposed to. We have to. And Paul's guidance doesn't, doesn't come from human counsel. It comes from Christ himself, conveyed through an apostle with divine authorization. So lastly, Paul tells Timothy, don't let anybody disregard you. He's supposed to respect and embody a godly lifestyle. If, if, if Titus is up there and he's saying, this is what you need to do, and he's not doing it, people will disrespect him. So Paul's telling him, live like you want other people to live. 
You want your children to live godly lives, then you better be living godly lives. You want your neighbor that you see all the time to live godly lives, you better live godly lives. If I want you guys to live godly lives, I have to live a godly life. And believe me, I struggle with it because I'm just like you. I'm no closer to God than you are. I have no special access to him that you don't have. But we need to live godly lives. Set an example in our speech, our conduct, our love, our faith, our purity. Teachers and preachers today need to draw valuable lessons from this passage. While teaching doctrine is crucial in imparting it, it's also important to live it. Set the example. And we need to exhort and rebuke those who are not teaching sound doctrine. Why? Because the truth is at stake. And the age that we're living in is evil. Paul told the church of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and our Father. It's because of the grace that's given to us by Christ that we can live lives we're supposed to. And at last, we will have that grace. We will be able to pull from that grace until the day that Jesus comes back. And that's what we celebrate in communion. 